Just over one year ago, pandemic lockdowns were taking place and there was a great deal of uncertainty both about the present and our future. Work, school, entertainment, nearly every aspect of life was altered. One of the first people we talked to was our friend, practical futurist, Michael Rogers. And for over 20 years, he's provided a powerful catalyst for organizations to create a vision of the future. He's been featured on every major news outlet and has made numerous presentations to a wide range of audiences. I'm Robert Colangelo, and I'm always happy to welcome back our guest, Michael Rogers, here to GreenSense. Michael, thanks for joining. Good to be back after uh, quite a year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's putting it lightly. Well, before we get started, uh, tell our listeners how you became a futurist. Do you go to school to get a degree? Is there special training or certifications? Is there a secret handshake? <laughs> um, these days there actually is are courses you can take in being a futurist uh, most futurists I know though sort of just fell into it my background was both in writing and in technology I ended up with two degrees actually in college one in physics and one in creative writing and ended up um, following the writing path until the whole new media thing came along and I realized I could finally put both sides of my brain together, began developing new media for Newsweek, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and uh, realized finally that all the problems I was dealing with in helping those organizations applied to you know, lots and lots of groups and organizations and individuals. So I started to call myself a futurist. So to answer the question, I think that one way you become a futurist is to call yourself one. <laughs> are, is there certifications? Are people there, certified as futurists? Yes, there are now uh, a number of of schools. There's a couple in Texas, I believe, that have a master's program in future studies. And if I'm not mistaken, you can still get a doctorate in the futurism in Australia, which struck me why Australia. But of course, when you think about it, they're the first over the international dateline. So in a sense, they, <laughs> the future is a natural <laughs> resource there. Well, what makes you a practical futurist in my mind is that you go into research facilities, you look at technology, and then you forecast what you think uh, will be coming out of those labs when and how that's going to impact the, pres uh, the present and the future. Is that right? Anything else you'd want to add? Exactly. And I also am very careful to draw a line between science fiction and futurism. I've written a lot of science fiction, but the futurism piece, you have to be just a little bit more cynical about uh, particularly the business side that drives so much technology these days. And, you know, whether something is just a really, really interesting idea or whether it's something that will actually gain traction in the real world. Well, let's get into the meat of the interview, and that's the pandemic and how it's going to shape our future. Uh, restrictions are just starting to ease in the U.S. as the population's getting vaccinated. Not so true in other parts of the world. Others are still seeing record number of cases. In your opinion, what have we learned from the pandemic? Uh, well, it, it's a variety of things. I think in the broadest sense, what the pandemic has done is push us five to seven years into the future in several areas. Uh, a future that we weren't actually ready for and the technology wasn't ready for. So we've had some mixed results, but this includes things like 
hybrid education, in other words, education at home, online, combined with in-person, uh, work from home, uh, which I think we were on a glide path in a very general, nice, you know, reasonable pace to land on towards 2026, 2027, when more and more people would work part-time at home, part-time in the office. All of a sudden, we were there. So I think what's happened is those areas uh, are, are both areas, interestingly, where the technology folks, uh, the venture capitalists have said, wow, we can really do well in these areas because we have now tried it out. Uh, people have the habit of working at home. The technology is not very good. So let's pour some money into it. So I expect a lot of improvement in work from home, in hybrid education. And the final one is telemedicine. Uh, the fact that we really have been forced into, particularly the payers, the insurance companies, and the providers have been forced into telemedicine. And it turns out that it works pretty well for a variety of things, and patients like it. So that we'll see a lot of progress in also. Well, let's dig into some of those issues a little deeper. Uh, for many of us, uh, all you need these days is a laptop, a good internet connection, and uh, you can do your job something you've just mentioned, and you talked about the virtualization of America and our world in, in other presentations you've made. Explain exactly what that means, and maybe you could dig a little deeper on how that's going to impact us in the future. Right. Well, I think we are in the midst of this enormous shift of deciding what parts of our lives still belong in the real world, what parts can be done in the virtual world. Uh, and how you connect between them. And more and more, we're moving things into the virtual world as the technology gets better, as younger people grow up much more familiar and comfortable in that environment. So, you know, I think uh, in terms of office space, uh, certainly my corporate clients, and I doing a lot of uh, Zoom and WebEx and Microsoft Teams discussions with uh, big corporate clients who are thinking about what do we do when this all goes back to the new normal. One thing is, I don't hear a lot of people saying we want 100% of our workers back in the office. Not necessarily because they're great believers in work from home, uh, but two things, really, uh, saving money, uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of issues now about the fact that, in a, in a way, we're putting the cost of running the office onto the employee, and companies used to pay for that. There's a lot of legal issues around that that will be interesting. But for the companies, it's clear. It's cheaper to keep people at home. And number two, young, talented people want to work at home part of the time. What we're... What, I'm seeing a big focus on is collaborative workspaces and models in which we come into the office once or twice a week. Or we have remote offices that are, for example, in suburbs, so we don't have to come all the way into the city. <laughs> we have small pods. <laughs> I think we'll be hearing the word pod uh, long after the uh, educational need for pods goes away because small groups are really handy in for example, setting up uh, remote telepresence centers. Uh, so, so anyway, I think that's what we'll see around. So two uh, spin-off questions from that. One is that you riddled off uh, a number of 
telecommunications uh, platforms, WebEx, uh, Zoom, Skype. It's amazing how quick Skype <laughs> went out of favor. Yeah. What do you see on those platforms? There's so many of them out there. We each have to learn the nuances of operating those. Do you see a consolidation in the market and maybe one platform? I suspect there'll be uh, uh, something that we see in personal computers, sort of a twinning uh, phenomenon. It's, it's interesting how market economies seem to end up with brand A and brand B. And you could sort of argue that we really have three broad IT brands. Uh, one is sort of Google, Android, one is Microsoft, and one is Apple, uh, that are sort of charting their own paths. So I think we'll see uh, a diminution in the number that we have of these video platforms. They'll begin to distinguish themselves, I think in particular by their ability to create social spaces. Uh, one of the things that companies that I know are really worried about is once you have these distributed workforces, how do you create um, a corporate culture? How do you make people feel like they're part of something? And so interestingly, uh, there's a, a concept that's been kicked around this year called the digital campfire, which is the idea of how do we create something that's sort of equivalent to the, I guess, what the water cooler was in the office, where people just sort of hang out uh, and there's something to sort of distract them or to keep them there. The campfire, for example, you're at the campfire to stay warm, but that's not your full-time activity, so you can still talk to people, uh, and that creates the social environment. How do you create something like that? And I think that is going to be the next way that the, the working, the virtual working platforms begin to distinguish themselves. What What's the digital campfire? What's the digital water cooler? How do you bring people together in a way that creates culture? Interesting. Well, another thing you mentioned was the uh, lack or the lack of need for office space. What's going to happen to all these vacancies with these office space? What's going to be the adaptive reuse for them? That's an interesting question. Uh, here in New York City, where I live, there's already active talk uh, about converting some office space, particularly in Midtown, uh, into apartments uh, or turning it into fractional office space. And I think we'll see more and more of that fractional office space where companies can come in and rent you know, maybe 30 or 40 offices for some kind of project that then goes away in, in six months. Uh, or, you know, so, so I think those will sort of become fractional office spaces, but I don't think we will ever need the amount of office space that we had, say, five years ago. And I think in retail, we're going to see a lot of empty retail spaces. And those, in a way, I have a feeling we're going to start to see models in which uh, pop-up stores become the, the physical presence uh, that uh, retailers use to, to create customer loyalty. Uh, even restaurants. You can imagine restaurants today that have created successful businesses basically just on takeout and delivery 
um, themselves deciding that they will simply have what's called a ghost kitchen. It's just the kitchen. There's no front of the house. They just create the meals there. And then maybe every week or every three weeks, you have a special event in a pop-up space. So I think we're going to actually see a lot more, a lot of retail and even restaurants turn into pop-up spaces. Interesting. It's uh, it's so hard to predict the future these days. I feel like the economy is water sloshing around in a bucket. One day mm -hmm. we go in a sector where there is so much demand and there's undersupply. You wait six months, the opportunities lost, there's oversupply, prices erode, and things are moving so rapidly that it's very hard for business to predict where to go. Thoughts on that? I think that's true, and I think that that's that's why there is going to be an interest in leasing, in not making big commitments in terms of physical space, or indeed even in terms of uh, employees. I don't think we're going to see people come back to the level of employment that that we saw pre-COVID in terms of full-time jobs with benefits. One trend that I'm definitely seeing is a focus on automation. Uh, if there is a lesson here for all these larger companies that have lost workers, it's okay, I've, I've survived, I have a pot of money to spend, as you say, it's sloshing around. Do I spend it on bringing back workers, uh, an ongoing expense that I now know is highly vulnerable, or do I spend it on automation? And in the last, you know, and, and the fact is automation of various kinds has, has really moved forward in the last five years. Machine learning specifically has given us both office software uh, and robotics that's far more sophisticated and inexpensive because it's all cloud-based than what we had even five years ago. So if I'm a corporate manager, I look out and I say, you know, I think I'm going to spend part of that pot of money on automation. Well, one area that was significantly hit was education. I look at the uh, poor mm -hmm. high school kids that were just about to graduate. Maybe it was their last year playing sports. They were looking for a college uh, scholarship or college uh, kids who just were going to graduate and had to get a job in the workforce when nobody was interviewing or even taking calls. You know, this pandemic seems to have highlighted cracks in institutional problems that were long seated. You talked about uh, uh, your prediction that the radical new world, about the radical new world of education. So expound upon that and talk <laughs> a little bit about uh, what you see in the future. Well, actually, that, that brings up two thoughts. First on education and secondly on those students and their generation. But in terms of education, I think that that is another area where the venture capitalists have seen the existing software doesn't work very well. Uh, there's going to be a demand for it. There's a lot of interesting work now, again, in combining machine learning with distance software uh, for ed distant educational software in which you actually have devices that increasingly uh, orient themselves towards the needs of an individual student and learn what works and what doesn't. Um, 
there've been some problems with privacy and various hiccups along the way, but it's an incredibly powerful tool. And suddenly it could make sense that you stay at home or at the library or someplace that's convenient for you part of the time to do the simple pedagogic studies that it turns out that these very smart pieces of software are good at. And then the rest of the time you go into the physical space to learn the human skills, the ones that will never be automated, at least not in the next few lifetimes. And that's things like real creativity, uh, open-ended problem solving, uh, empathetic communication, and collaboration, interestingly, something that uh, it, machines are not as good at as we are. There's a little magic in collaboration. So that's the first piece. That's how I think education will change. And honestly, uh, this is something university professionals have been thinking about for a few years, which is, you know, long, even before this, holy cow, we have a lot of real estate. What are we going to do with it once distance learning gets to be very good? And I think the answer is there's a hybrid model that will emerge very powerfully. And then the second piece is that generation, which is the Gen Z, which I believe will find this experience very, very formative. Uh, the experience of what our society has gone through because they will really see, as you put it, the cracks in the institutions. I think we're going to see uh, a pretty radical uh, generation coming out of that, one that really demands some fundamental changes because the post-COVID world that they are moving into is, is not gonna be a real friendly one for people just starting out in the workplace, for example. Well, let's talk a little bit about the economy because this segues into that. Um, what I've read so far is that if you have a college degree and you were employed, you actually did quite well during COVID. Your bank account increased, your prosperity increased, but if you didn't have a college education and you were below that line, things are really bad. What is your thoughts on the future of this, this divide that's getting wider and greater and uh, creating a lot of disharmony? This is another example of uh, getting pushed five to seven years into the future because I've talked for some time about the increasing inequalities in, in our society, which are due to a variety of things. Some decisions that we have made as a country about how uh, our economy operates, the rise of shareholder value, particularly as, a, as sort of a central dogma for businesses to follow. Um, Secondly, though, the whole automation piece, uh, and uh, it, you know, we've always said automation eliminates jobs but creates more new jobs. Uh, more and more economists, particularly in Europe, are looking at this and saying, well, that's just not going to be the case here because we can automate a lot of things and we're simply not going to need as many humans. So ultimately, there's a reason that, you know, people like Bill Gates, as, you know, three or four years ago, began talking about the universal basic income, about the need for some really fundamental changes in how uh, wealth is distributed. And I think that next generation, Gen Z, uh, is going to come right into that with some strong ideas. So uh, all of that ties in, of course, ultimately to the next crisis, which is sustainability, resilience, and response to climate change. Um, and that was my next question, was let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the environment since we're in an environmental show. 
you know, we've talked about the economy, we've talked about people, we've talked about education. What's the future for the environment? Well, I'm at the moment optimistic, and I'll tell you why. It's because I spent the last year working on a book in which uh, it's science fiction. It's set in 2084. It's a guy who is 10 years old today. Uh, he's uh, 75 as he's telling the story. And it's a story of what would happen if we did everything right for the next 50 years. Because when you look out, we, we really do, you know, as, as you show, you know, your show regularly, the people that you talk to, we have pretty much all the tools we need. We have the knowledge we need. We have the understandings. What if through a combination of lucky events and history, we did everything right? And so it's a fairly utopian book. Um, but I, in writing it, I felt, you know, the world has a lot of dystopias. It's, it's not hard to do a dystopian novel these days. Um, but there's actually some reasons, I think, for optimism. Um, and some of it is going to be driven by this next generation and by the coming together of all these, these forces, including the economic and the technologic, uh, that, uh, that could potentially create a situation that towards the middle end of this decade, particularly with the rise of extreme weather, which I think is what is going to catch global attention. And the global attention is important. Um, it's interesting, right now, Gen Z is without a doubt the most internationalized generation we have ever seen. I mean, the average 10-year-old in Milwaukee probably has more in common with a 10-year-old in South Korea than he does with the 35-year-old who lives across the street from him. I mean, this is an internationalized world. Uh, and it's a generation that I think thinks in a broader sense. We just have to make sure that they have the tools, the inspiration, the space, and the support to, to go forward. Michael, I could go on talking to you forever. It's, it's always such a joy, but I want to end on one last question. And that does, uh, uh, you talked about Bill Gates, and he's had a statement that's often been quoted, we always overmiss we always overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years and underestimate the change that will occur in the next 10. Don't let yourself be lulled into inaction. Thoughts and comments on that statement? Uh, that, that is, that's a great quote. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful that the way Bill has, has changed the direction of his life because <laughs> I knew him for many years. And honestly, if you'd met Bill when he was in his 20s, you would not have named him as the potential wonderful philanthropist to be. He was basically focused entirely on being the smartest kid in the room. Um, so God bless Bill Gates, and he's absolutely right. Uh, this decade, I think, could be the one in which enough social consciousness that has, I think, arisen to some extent through COVID. We have terrible divisions, not just in our society, but in, in most of the Western world now. Uh, but I do believe that we have a majority of younger people who are growing up in a world in which there are real options. And the, the changes could happen fast. We've seen how fast things happened during COVID. If we just make a few decisions and move ahead, 
I believe, you know, that by 2030, we will possibly be saying to ourselves, we can see a way out of this, this being environmental collapse. Uh, the tools are there. And uh, I have great faith that uh, with the right kind of people uh, and shows like yours, and maybe books like mine, that we can somehow get things going in the right direction. Well, Michael, here's to a green future with renewable energy, green infrastructure, diversity, equality, and peace and happiness for all. I hope uh, your prognostication does come true. <laughs> Thanks very much. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to prognosticate. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure to uh, join you. And I want you to teach me that secret handshake next time. We meet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Got it. That's Practical Futurist Michael Rogers joining us on GreenSense. You can learn more about him at michaelrogers.com. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is GreenSense, reminding you to subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com and to check out the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday at News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM, WBBM Chicago. <laughs>